0: Let us all pray. Our Heavenly Father, what can we say when we consider all of the good things that you have given to us in life? And when we come today to such a day as this and seek to know more fully the joy of Christian love, the love which you have extended toward us when we never, never, never deserved it, the love which drew salvation's plan, the love which brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. We thank you for that love. And that love demands of us that we be crucified with Christ and that we die to self that he might live through us. Help us to know that those who seek to find life can only find it by losing it in Jesus Christ and help us to lose our life in loving service to him. We pray that you will bless these gifts, that you will superintend their use, that they might bring honor and glory to your name, and that you will bless us in the study of your word so that its truth might take root in our hearts and bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Please hear our prayer and grant to us a deeper walk with thee, In Jesus' name, amen. I tried to put down a list of people to thank, but there are so many people to thank and so little time that we have this morning. But I do want to express my deep appreciation to Bill Wing for all that he's done in my absence, and I want to express my appreciation to Charlene in the church office and to Jan Jones and Teresa and uh, to so many others, the members of the session, the members of the Board of Deacons. I received a great many letters from people that listened to us on the radio that were of great encouragement uh, to me. And uh, I received a lot of letters and cards and expressions of love from you. And I am grateful for them all. John Akers, who is my beloved colleague, came back in the office this morning and he said, Now don't start off talking about your operation. And I appreciate those words of advice, but if he paid as much money as that operation cost and hurt as much as I did, he might say something about it, too. (laughs) But what I want to say about it is that I'm grateful that it's over. (laughs) And uh, I'm grateful to the people uh, who have prayed for me during that time, and I'm especially grateful for those of you who have been so encouraging in what you've written. Now take your bulletin there and turn to 1 Corinthians 13, and let's get on with the uh, Word of God. I wanted to say this uh, as we go to this uh, passage of Scripture. Uh, One reason that this passage I thought was so appropriate for today and for me uh, is that my beloved wife really lives this passage of Scripture, and she has kept me going when I didn't want to keep going. And there is simply not enough good that I can say uh, in praise of her faithfulness in assisting me during the time of troubles that I have been in, and in the pain. And I want to say to each of you, especially to the parents of these little children uh, who are here, uh, whatever you do in your own home, in your own marriage, uh, make love your aim. Uh, Whatever we do in the church, if it's not done with the love of the Lord, it's going to result in scattering and in breaking apart and in trouble. And that's precisely why Paul wrote this marvelous passage of Scripture, which has been set to music, which has been sung, uh, which has been uh, spoken of as one of the greatest pieces of literature uh, in all of the history of writing. But in back of every statement that's great, there has to be a history that brought it about. And when you pick up 1 Corinthians 13 and you start to look, at those marvelous golden words. And I think that Tertius, the scribe, when Paul was dictating this, must have heard him and, at the end of writing this down in dictation, looked up with his face flowing with tears at what was spoken, because only God could give such remarkable words. If Jesus Christ had never lived, Paul could never have written these words. And uh, this is important. These words were addressed to a church that had a lot of very gifted and talented people in it. One thing about gifted and talented people is that they often are super colliders. Uh, they will collide with each other. And this was true in Corinth. Paul had been eighteen months in Corinth, and uh, he had heard a voice from God telling him that in that cesspool of iniquity and in Corinth that a church for Jesus should be established. The Jews had been driven out of Rome by a decree from the Roman government, and Paul, in seeking a place for an occupation, had gone from Athens where he had preached the gospel and where there was apparently little results from it. And apparently alone he goes into Corinth, a huge city, uh, but a city that was notorious for its evil. And in that place he sought work, and his work was the work of a tent maker, a worker in leather. And so he went into the section of the city where the leather workers worked, and there he found two Jews, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, They were believers in Jesus as the Messiah. Someone had instructed them in the faith. Paul teaches them more perfectly, and, they, and there they begin to teach. They go to the synagogue, and there in the synagogue, uh, they reason with people about the scriptures, and a church is formed in Corinth. When Paul had left Corinth, he received word that while he was away, that there had been disputes in the church, that some had heard Apollos speak, and Apollos was a golden-tongued orator, who, with spell-binding ability, could call people out to faith in Jesus. And there were people saying, I am a better Christian than you are, because I came to Christ under Apollos. And then there were people who were saying, I am a better Christian than you are, because I was baptized by Peter. This is the head that had Simon Peter's hand laid upon it in baptism. And I was baptized by him and I'm a better Christian than you are. Uh, There were people who from the household of Chloe had brought these words to Paul, telling him there is division that's come in. Some are saying, I am of Paul, trying to make Paul a party of their strife. And others who were super spiritual were saying, I am of Jesus in the way that no one else really is, and looking down on other people. Ruth Graham told me a very interesting lesson years ago. Uh, we, were, we were talking about spiritual pride, and she said spiritual pride is like B.O. It cannot be spiritual. <laughs> and uh, that's, a, that's a real lesson. Uh, it may sound crude to you, but it's absolute truth. Now, when Paul deals with this church, he has people who are guilty of incest people who are guilty of fornication, people who have divorced, Uh, people who have sued each other in court, Uh, people who have gotten drunk at the Lord's table, Uh, people who have said they didn't believe that Jesus ever rose from the dead. Uh, There were all manner of scraps and arguments that were coming there. When Paul comes into chapter 12, he begins to list spiritual gifts because these people were very ambitious for spiritual gifts. After all, Corinth was not very far from Athens, and Athens was the seat of all the learning of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And there were people who were greatly proud of their knowledge. And so they sought to laud it, lord it over people who were not so learned. And look at what Paul says when he gets to chapter 12 and begins to talk about this. He says, God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps. I never hear anyone pray that they'll be given the gift to be helpful. I never hear anyone really in these meetings pray for the gift of chastity much. And in the day in which we live, that would be a great uh, gift. Uh, the gifts of administration. There are various kinds of tongues, Paul says. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? And the implication is, no, they are not. All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret do they, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. And then he begins to speak of what may have been ecstatic speech in an unknown tongue or great eloquence and power in holding people in the palm of your hand. Paul says, so what if I speak with the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love? I am become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You ever watch a cymbal clang? It everyone jars like that. No one wants to hear a cymbal solo. A cymbal is a percussion instrument and it clangs and it calls attention to itself. And Paul says right here, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I am like a noisy gong. There was a copper gong that the pagans would pound on to come down to the temple of Aphrodite or to go to the temple of Bacchus, the god of wine, and those horrible noisy gongs. Paul says, If I claim to be a Christian and my eloquence is supposed to give me superiority over other people, or my gift of tongues, or any other of the number of gifts, teaching, or whatever. And all I do is call attention to myself. It is repugnant Is that percussion instrument, that noisy gong, that clanging cymbal. And then he goes on, what if I have the gift of prophecy? I can foresee the future. I know who President Bush is going to name to his cabinet. I know whether that mark on Gorbachev's head is the Antichrist. I know uh, what's going to happen in the future. What if I have the gift of prophecy and I can do all of that? I've got the book of Revelation figured out. I can tell you with my charts where everything is. Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, So as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Now who is the man who is saying this? This is Paul, who was a student of Gamaliel. This is Paul, the learned rabbi from Tarsus. This is Paul, who knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. This is Paul, who with zeal persecuted the church because he thought it was a heresy. But when he came to know Jesus Christ, he dropped that arrogance and that pride, and he gave himself over to the Lordship of Christ so that he would make tents to support himself. And he humbled himself and became a teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is so important to be remembered. You know, you'll forgive me, I hope, for just letting it come out where i want it to uh down at our house on wednesdays art wiest comes to work in the yard every time you come by there in the spring and you see all those pretty flowers thank the lord and thank art wiest and some of my dutch friends i told dorothy if i died and they could make a park out of it to call it Art's park Uh, (laughs) because art works hard in doing that but one of the most beautiful things about all of that is at the breakfast table on Wednesday morning when he comes and we read the scripture union and we pray together. And I've noticed that the lady who cleans for us on Wednesdays, she comes over and wants her friends prayed for, especially by art. Uh, because Wilhelm, he told me long ago when art came here, he said, boy, if you can, you get him to help you. Uh, with your yard, because he's not only a great Christian, uh, but he is a great uh, gardener. Well, he's helped me with my soul, is what I'm getting at. Uh, And he's the kind of guy who's there every Wednesday night at prayer meeting. He doesn't have a whole lot to say, but when he says something, it's worth listening to. Uh, Joe Wilkerson, when he prays, you can hear that, and Joe's worked out there. Not always the people who attract a lot of attention really have the gifts, uh, uh, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor? What if I got all kind of money and I give it to feed the poor? What if I deliver my body and one fanatical thing to be burned, but do not have love? It profits me nothing. When we were down at Moorhead City, I was so depressed at the time that I was invited to go down there that I didn't even want to go through the business of, of buying an airplane ticket or or going to Piedmont and changing in Charlotte, or moving. I I just didn't want to do anything. And an old guy who's an electrical uh, contractor who practically cusses in his prayers, Uh, uh, I hadn't seen him in eight or nine years. He'd called uh, uh, Charlene on the phone and said for me to, um, if I felt up to it, that he didn't want to call me, if he feels up to it, tell him to call me. I called him and he arranged for an airplane to, uh, come up here and get us and bring us down there. And he spent time taking us out on, a, uh, on the sea where the sun and the wind and the work of the ocean uh, had a very beneficial effect. And that man loves the Lord. He took me, by the way, to the Episcopal Church uh, four Sundays in a row. Now, I was getting up, and they were sitting down and sitting up uh, at the wrong time, and I had an awful time with all those ribbons trying to find my place in the prayer book. But I want to tell you something about those Episcopalians. They use about four times as much scripture as we do. I noticed that. This was an evangelical church. It was charismatic, so I could see about a half a dozen hands up at different times. Uh, But it was a good evangelical church and I loved it. And uh, that man showed love to me at a time when I needed it. He didn't get anything out of me. What can he possibly get out of me? Nothing. But he knew I was sick, and he showed me Christian love for which he could get nothing in return. Not a thing. And uh, while we were there, he he wanted to see a video on television. And the video was of Mother Teresa, who's 78 years old, born in 1910 in uh, Albania. It showed that tiny little woman With her work in Calcutta, with pictures that were so awful that you almost had to turn your head away from the screen, it showed that little tiny thing, not even five feet tall, hugging those people with ugly sores and flies swarming around them and worms and stench. How much money do you think she gets for that? She doesn't have one single fundraiser. Not a one. When they gave her the Nobel Prize in Stockholm, they had her booked into the finest hotel in Stockholm. You know what she did? She went to a nunnery and stayed in the dormitory there with the other sisters. And one of the priests who spoke said, If you think Mother Teresa is here because she loves the poor, the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, you have misread Mother Teresa." She is here because she loves Jesus, and Jesus taught her to love these poor people. So that's Christian love. Nothing can be given in return. Well, We have to go on. Uh, Paul had been a person who would have been willing to be burned at the stake for his faith, but he says, if it didn't have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Here, the character, that first part of that is the life without love. That's almost the autobiography of a Pharisee. Love is patient. Now, love is patient. God is patient. Martin Luther, John Newton, preached a great sermon on Martin Luther. Martin Luther said a lot of funny things. Martin Luther said, if I were God, I'd kick the world to pieces because it's so dumb. But God is patient. And God wants us to be patient. Love is kind. I saw the glimmer in the eyes of people whose little children were up here a while ago. You know why? That's where the word "kin" folk comes from. You're kind to your kin. Uh, and we need to realize that in Christ we're all kin to one another when we're in him. Love is kind, is not jealous. Love rejoices in someone else's uh, whatever they've got. It doesn't make any difference to me when I see a $5 million yacht going down the uh, intercoastal waterway. Uh, I'm thankful for just being able to live and breathe and hope that the Lord can get some mileage out of me. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. Remember, they were getting drunk at the Lord's table? It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, forgets it, shrugs it off, doesn't remember it, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. You think about the mud campaign that went on during the presidential elections and all the different things that happened then. My soul, if you read these words from scripture, you you have to see that this is no Christian way, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Uh, I was looking at an article last night by Don King and Richard Gray uh, on uh, the reality of Christian personalities in fictional literature and the scarcity of real Christian figures. Evil is so much more attractive in fiction than good is. And yet it's just the reverse in real life. If you see a Mother Teresa and you watch her, you're really moved by that selfless individual who lost herself to find her life in Christ and to obey him. She took a vow of poverty. And now it's a way of life for her. It doesn't matter to her what you've got. She isn't interested in it. She wants to do what God told her to do, what Jesus told her to do. Bears all things, that is, puts a, notice that word all, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, looks for the best in other people, endures all things. Then Paul comes to, after these characteristics of love, to the permanence of love. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, one day all the prophecies will be fulfilled. They'll be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. You won't need them anymore. If there is knowledge, if you've got all that learning from—you know, I had one of the most learned people that I've ever known tell me that he was praying that the Lord would enable him not to be critical of sermons when he went to church. He was so much smarter than most of the preachers that he heard that he could think rings around him. But he wanted to be humble so that he could get something even out of a shallow or superficial sermon. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, that which is imperfect will be done away. And then he says, when I was a child, when I was a child, we watched these little children a while ago. When I was a child, and you think about children, see my new bicycle? (laughs) See me jump? You call attention there? When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. Well, Paul said some of you in this gifted and talented church in Corinth are taking your toys of your knowledge and your gifts and beating each other over the head with them. And that's no way to be acting. I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. We think it's cute when a little child says, I'm sweet. But if the little child is 20 years old and saying that, it doesn't seem so sweet anymore. Uh, When I was a child, I reasoned as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. We need to grow up. For now we see in a mirror dimly. Corinth was famous for its burnished mirrors, which were made out of metal. But then face to face, Fanny Crosby, that great old saint who was born... And blinded just within a few weeks of her birth said that her favorite hymn that she had written was I shall see him face to face that one day she'll see Jesus face to face and it used to give her a great comfort that the first face that she would ever see would be the face of Jesus now now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now I know in part but then I shall know fully just as I have also been fully known. And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love." How do you get that love? Graham Scroggie was the minister of the Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh. A lady came up to him after church and said, I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, but I am a concert pianist here in Edinburgh, and I do- and I feel God has called me to the mission field, but all my life has been put into training for music, and I really don't want to go. And Graham Scroggy said to her, you cannot say, not so, and then say, Lord. And he reminded her of Peter's rebuke, which he received from Jesus when Jesus told Peter that he had to go to the cross, that he, Jesus, had to go to the cross and die. And Peter said, not so, Lord. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You have to die to yourself. He reminded her that when Peter did not want to accept the Gentiles into his fellowship and be friends with them, and said, not so, Lord, because I haven't associated with people like this. And Jesus said to him, you can't say not so and say Lord. So Graham Scroggie wrote on a piece of paper, not so, and then he wrote Lord. and He told her to go over and sit down in a corner of the church and look at that. And she went over and looked at it, and it said, not so, and then, Lord. Then she tore the not so part off, and she went back to him and handed him the word, Lord. And she said, I've given all my life to him. That's what we need to do, is to give all our life to him. In Romans, we are taught that love should be without dissimulation not plastic as Bonnie was talking about this morning, not phony. We are taught that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, and that's tough love. It means that we have to be willing to die to self and to love when it isn't easy to love. May God help us to surrender our lives to him.